0: Chapter fifty one, Part Three of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two by Moncure Conway. Chapter fifty one, Part Three. Soon after undertaking the life of Thomas Paine I found that it was a large and arduous task. The anathema on him had been the means of burying masses of important facts. He was the most competent and voracious witness to the events of the revolutionary epoch of the eighteenth century, in America, England, and France, and his testimony had been suppressed or ignored by historians because he wrote The Age of Reason." IT WAS NECESSARY TO REVISE THE HISTORY OF THE THREE NATIONS BETWEEN 1774 AND 1800 IN THE LIGHT OF Payne's LETTERS AND WRITINGS, PUBLISHED AND UNPUBLISHED. HAVING EXPLORED THE AMERICAN ARCHIVES, I RESOLVED TO FOLLOW THE TRACKS OF Paine IN EUROPE. THIS PURPOSE WAS DELAYED BY A DEMAND FROM PROFESSOR ERIC ROBERTSON TO WRITE THE LIFE OF HAWTHORNE FOR THE GREAT WRITER'S SERIES HE WAS EDITING FOR WALTER SCOTT. THE WRITING OF THIS WORK WAS A DELIGHT FROM FIRST TO LAST. IN THE GREAT CENTENNIAL YEAR OF 1889, WHEN I ACTED ON THE COMMITTEE FOR WASHINGTON FAMILY PORTRAITS IN NEW YORK, AND WROTE HISTORICAL ARTICLES, I WAS CONSCIOUS THE WHILE THAT NO PRESIDENT THAT EVER LIVED INTERESTED ME SO MUCH AS NATHANIEL HAWTHORNE. I DISCOVERED A HAWTHORNE ENTHUSIAST IN MR. G.M. WILLIAMSON, THEN OF BROOKLYN, WHO TOOK ME OUT TO HIS HOUSE, WHERE HE AND HIS GRACIOUS WIFE ENTERTAINED ME TWO DAYS WHILE I EXPLORED THE M.S.S. REFERRED TO IN MY VOLUME. In the spring I went with my wife and daughter on a sort of Hawthorne pilgrimage, to Salem, Brook Farm, Concord, talking with all who remained of Hawthorne's friends, especially with his wife's sister, Elizabeth Peabody, and with Dr. Holmes and Wentworth Higginson. Then I began the work at our pine and palm cottage, Wiano, Cape Cod. In October 1889 we sailed for France, and after seeing the exposition went on to Rome, In the Continental Hotel, where I had a good room for writing, I had the fortune to find the particular old friend who could be most helpful to me, Dr. George B. Loring of Salem, then U.S. Minister to Portugal. He had known Hawthorne all his life, had thoroughly studied him, and was glad to give me his recollections. In the same hotel Dr. George Bird of London was passing the winter. He was a near friend of Dante Rossetti, and an expert art critic. He entered with eagerness into my plan of visiting every work of art in Rome mentioned by Hawthorne in the Marble Fawn, and in his notebooks. So, with Mr. and Mrs. W. W. story at hand, and the Stillman's, and the Dufferins at the British Embassy, I could hardly have been better situated for writing about Hawthorne. When I was called on to give a public lecture on Hawthorne in Rome, most of the large audience must have felt that they had helped me to prepare the piece, especially the Countess Maronne, owner of Hilda's Tower, and Lady Victoria, youngest daughter of Lord Dufferin, and Ava, who guided me about and was the sweetest of interpreters. It was she who went with me to see the Tarpeian rock, and asked the custodian to show us the exact spot where the capuchin fell and was killed. "'There's the place,' answered the Italian woman, but he was not killed at all. The papers said so, but he was taken to the hospital, and is now quite well.' While in Rome I was called on to give another public address, it was on Robert Browning, tidings of whose death reached us. W. W. Story and his wife were as deeply moved as myself by this event. Story said to me, "'The last time I saw him was here in Rome. He was just driving off to the station, but stopped his voiture and looked out. I went to him, and he placed his hands on my shoulders and said, Forty years of unbroken friendship.' That was all.' I could not speak, and he drove on. While writing The Life of Hawthorne, published in 1890, I had friends and agents in both America and England, ferreting out for me every letter and relic and old edition of Thomas Paine. On arriving in England the same year I visited every spot in the country associated with Paine, as indeed I had done in America and Paris. The two volumes of Paine's life and four volumes of his writings occupied the greater part of five years— in 1892 my old congregation urged such reasons for my resuming my ministry there that I had to consent to give them discourses for a time, and in 1893 wrote the centenary history of South Place Chapel, which in 1793 was founded by Elhanan Winchester of Roxbury, Massachusetts. Originally a stern, calvist preacher, he had been converted to universalism by the gentle protest of an American schoolgirl, casually met in a stage-coach, against the dogmas with which he was trying to alarm her. Elhanan published a vigorous reply to Paine's Age of Reason. The centenary of his chapel was celebrated by a Paine exhibition there, and now an oil portrait of Paine by Charles Wesley Jarvis, presented by myself, hangs on its wall. In 1892 my life of Thomas Paine appeared, and, to my surprise, the alumni of my old college, Dickinson, Carlisle, Pennsylvania— invited me to give their annual address, and on that occasion the college conferred on me the degree of L. H. D. In an appendix to my centenary history of my chapel I printed an essay on liberty composed of three discourses which had appeared in the open court Chicago. The Unitarian Christian life attacked me for opposing all laws enacted in the interest of private morality but I was consoled by letters of approval from Herbert Spencer, who had long passed out of our London circles by removing to St. Leonard's-on-Sea. On On December twelfth, 1893, he wrote, "'I am glad to see you still busy with your pen, and it seems to me with unflagging vigour. Judging from what I have seen in the notices—for I have not seen the book itself, which indeed I should not be able to read—you have done an important service in your life of pain alike in clearing his reputation and showing his merits.' and also by re-emphasizing some of his views. I have just been reading in the open court your first article on liberty, and have read it with great satisfaction. Napoleon's dictum was perfectly just, and I am startled to find he had long ago enunciated a view which I have often expressed with respect to the French, caring for equality but not for liberty. Though the same characteristic does not hold so completely of the English and the Americans as it does of the French, still it holds in large measure. As you rightly point out, people do not at all understand the principles of liberty. But here, I think, is a shortcoming in your conception. They have no true idea of liberty because they have no true sentiment of liberty. No theory is of much service in the matter without a character responding to the theory— without a feeling which prompts the assertion of individual freedom, and is indignant against aggressions upon that freedom, whether against self or others. Men care nothing about a principle, even if they understood it, unless they have emotions responding to it. When adequately strong, the appropriate emotion prompts resistance to interference with individual action, whether by an individual tyrant, or by a tyrant majority. But at present, in the absence of the appropriate emotion, There exists almost everywhere the miserable superstition that the majority has a right to dictate to the individual, about everything, whatever. I think you could not do a better thing than devote your energies to enlightening people upon this matter. It is the one thing about which politicians and people at large are utterly in the dark, and to dissipate the superstition that the majority has unlimited powers is of more importance than anything else in the field of politics.' THE DICTUM OF NAPOLEON I, SPENCER REFERRED TO, I FOUND IN TEN, THE PEOPLE DO NOT CARE ABOUT LIBERTY, WHAT THEY WANT IS EQUALITY, THOSE WHO CARE FOR LIBERTY ARE A FEW PECULIAR PERSONS. IN A POSTSCRIPT, SPENCER SAYS, WHAT A FAR-SEEING MAN TURGOT WAS. THIS WAS SUGGESTED BY MY QUOTATION FROM A LETTER OF TURGOT TO HIS FRIEND REVEREND DR. PRICE OF LONDON, WHO HAD WRITTEN HIM TRIUMPHANTLY ABOUT THE REVOLUTION IN AMERICA. I write to you no more about the Americans, says Turgot. For whatever be the issue of this war, I have somewhat lost the hope of seeing on the earth a nation really free and living without war. This spectacle is reserved for very remote ages. On January tenth, 1894, Herbert Spencer wrote to me, again spontaneously, I have just been reading your third essay in the open court, and entirely agree with it, How entirely I agree with its essential principle as set forth in the paragraph I enclose, you may judge if you will turn to my first book, Social Statistics. You will find there a statement of that same position which you set forth, namely that no restriction save that imposed by the law of equal freedom is to be tolerated, since any other restriction is liable to prevent man's nature from growing into its most desirable form. I should be very glad to see your essays in some developed shape put before the English public. You might take for your title liberty versus equality, and for motto the sentence you quote from Napoleon. I agree with you that little is to be done. The wave of opinion carrying us toward socialism is becoming irresistible, but still we ought severally to do our little, if not with a view to immediate effect, yet with a view to effect in time to come." The paragraph of my article enclosed by Herbert Spencer is subjoined. Among our faculties the moral sense now alone claims absoluteness, and in these days, when the moral sentiment is borrowing the enthusiasm of religion, it is important to consider whether this reinforced power is using scientific methods or merely giving new lease to notions related to discredited systems. The increasing tendency to invoke legal authority for the regulation of private conduct has succeeded to the declining authority which regulated religious belief and worship. As it is now certain that the enforcement of creeds retarded religious progress for many ages, it may be fairly suspected that moral legislation will retard ethical, consequently social, progress, unless the enforced morality be perfect and infallible. But it would require human omniscience to determine such perfection— and by consensus of ethical philosophers our moral systems are defective, their social results unsatisfactory. Legal repression of moral differentiation is, therefore, so far as effectual, practically prohibitive of improvement, from the danger of the general principle involved in such laws. Of course, the reference here is to strictly private conduct, that is, to conduct which directly concerns the individual agent alone. Human laws exist only to prevent one from injuring another or others, that is, from violating individual rights or public order. The law has no right to enslave a man, and it does make a slave of that man whose free will is coerced in matters directly concerning himself alone. That amounts to a majority of numbers suppressing, by brute force, a variation which, however popularly abhorred, may be as useful and productive as the variation of a crucified Jesus or a poisoned Socrates. It is truly claimed by moral coercionists that a man's private conduct necessarily involves others. But the laws cannot justly deal with indirect injuries which cannot be defined. A person may injure his or her relatives by becoming a monk or nun, or marrying out of their station, or emigrating. Men's virtues even sometimes turn out to others' harm, and their vices incidentally cause some benefit. The virtuous Roman emperors, Marcus Aurelius, for instance, were moved by their sincerity to persecute Christians, who were tolerated by the hypocritical, who inwardly despised the gods they outwardly worshipped. The just law cannot deal with inferential and uncalculable, but only with actual injuries. The greatest legal crimes of history have been done in the name of morality, as in the execution of Jesus for his immorality in violating the Sabbath laws and blasphemy laws of his country. Many a man has similarly suffered whose immorality is now morality. As to Herbert Spencer's idea that Napoleon's dictum was more applicable to the French than to the English and American peoples, I could only regard it as a sort of academic superstition. Even Emerson had his superstition about France, as shown in his quatrain, Natura in Minimis, first printed in my Cincinnati dial, March 1860. As sings the pine-tree in the wind, so sings in the wind a sprig of the pine. Her strength and soul has laughing France, shed in each drop of wine. Had it not been for France, and especially for George Sand the pleas of Herbert Spencer and J. S. Mill for personal liberty would probably never have been written. In the very year in which the above letter was written, the art students of Paris were engaged in defending their liberty against Beringer, who was trying to import from England its oppressions of all freedom not puritanical. In May 1896 my wife was obliged to undergo an operation. During her long illness I wrote my Solomon and Solomonic literature, published by the Open Court Company, Chicago. My wife appeared to be steadily recovering, but in May 1897 complications supervened, and a consultation of physicians decided that she could not recover. My connection with South Place Chapel at once ended, and I brought her to New York, where she died in the house of our daughter, Mrs. Sawyer, on Christmas Day, 1897. She was cremated with the exhumed body of our son Dana, THEIR ASHES ARE IN KENSICO CEMETERY. I ISSUED A LEAFLET FOR THE PERUSAL OF OUR FRIENDS CONCERNING HER LIFE AND DEATH. HERE I SAY NO MORE. THAT WAY MADNESS LIES. BROKEN BY PERSONAL BEREAVEMENT, FILLED WITH HORROR BY THE reign OF TERROR SUFFERED BY NEGROES IN THE SOUTH, ALIENATED FROM MY COUNTRYMEN BY WHAT SEEMED TO ME A MERE LYNCHING OF SPAIN, MY YOUTHFUL VISIONS TURNED TO ILLUSIONS. I LEFT FOR EUROPE. In June 1898 I gave several discourses to my old congregation in London, but there also the sky was overcast. England, too, was preparing to enter on a murderous career of aggression, and some of the most distinguished liberal thinkers were following Chamberlain in that direction. He had given to Birmingham the reputation of being the ideal Unitarian city, but was now proving that the orthodox nonconformists were more humane than the Unitarians, Thomas Paine used to say that the world would never have peace until the English people saw war at their own doors, and it looks as if he were right. Lord Salisbury, under whom the British lion became a mouse when bullied by the president of eighty millions, Cleveland, became doubly ferocious when it was the president of a handful of Dutch farmers who entreated arbitration, seems to have known this, and orders were sent out to South Africa that no wounded men were to be brought home. When I arrived in Paris I learned from Professor A. Olar of the Sorbonne, editor of La Révolution Française, Journal of a Society for the Study of the French Revolution, that six articles had appeared in that periodical on my Life and Writings of Thomas Paine, and that there was a desire for the French translation of the biography. The writer of the reviews, Monsieur Félix Rabbe, called on me, and an arrangement was at once made for our working together on Paine. The delightful old gentleman had once been a priest, but had left the church and married. In my Hôtel de Strasbourg we used to sit pleasantly in collaboration, and we were both surprised to find as we proceeded how many coincidences with the events of the French Revolution were occurring in the Dreyfus struggle raging around us. Similar principles were involved. Marat, Robespierre, Barère were easily recognized. Daily I read articles worthy of Junius, Condorcet, Cobette, Nay, even pain was at times recalled by Georges Clemenceau's leaders in L'Aurore. Of especial value to me in Paris was the friendship of John G. Alger, an Englishman on the London Times staff in Paris, author of Glimpses of the French Revolution, *Englishmen in the French Revolution, and other works of original investigation. A little controversy we had in the London Athenaeum brought us together. As others go fox-hunting, Alger and I hunted up the localities— "'connected with the revolutionary characters in Paris. "'I discovered that the Hôtel de Strasbourg, "'Cinquante Rue de Richelieu, in which I was writing about Payne, "'was but a little way from the Hôtel Philadelphia, "'where Payne stayed when he arrived in Paris, "'and where he was arrested, "'and in the same street was the Hotel of the Monroes, "'where they nursed Payne back to life after his release. "'My hotel was but five doors down from the house, "'now Hôtel Colbert where part two of the Age of Reason was printed. I knew nothing of these proximities when I fixed myself in the Hôtel de Strasbourg, nor that it was the house where Madame de Pompadour, as someone said, committed the only fault of her life, that of being born. My French work appeared, Maison Blanc, at the beginning of 1900 under the title Thomas Paine, 1737 à 1809, et la révolution dans les deux mondes. It contains much that is not in my English work, and is the only book in which the relations between France and America throughout the revolutions in both countries are given with detail and authentication. One document in it, of extreme historic importance, came into my hands from the late George Clinton Genet of New York. This lawyer was a son of the famous Genet, the ambassador sent to the United States early in 1793 the desire of the revolutionary republic in france to transfer to itself the alliance formed with the decapitated louis sixteenth led it to entrust to ambassador genet two long letters of beaumarchais of which one reveals the intrigues of a ministerial ring with beaumarchais to extort money fraudulently from the americans the writings about the french subsidies by the french and american historians are proved erroneous by this secret sent by beaumarchais to de vergennes the memoir secret shows that the king was without knowledge of the intrigue and believed that his subsidy was going genuinely and gratuitously to the americans in may nineteen hundred in paris i read in an english magazine a touching tribute by miss frances power cobb to dr martineau and sent her a paper of my own with a letter saying that i did so in loyalty to our old friendship though I did not suppose she could agree with some of my criticisms. I received from her a letter dated at Hangworth, Dulgally, North Wales, May 19, in which she said, That we should renew in our old age the acquaintanceship of long past years, and tell each other a little of where life's long voyage over seas of thought has landed us, seems to me rather affecting, and I can but respond to your friendly letter heartily in the same spirit thank you for writing, and also for sending me your article in the open court which I have read with much interest, and a good deal of agreement. Martineau's optimism never commended itself to me, because he obviously never really felt the agony of the riddle of the painful earth, and only approached it from the intellectual side. In particular it would seem as if the wide and terrible subject of the suffering of animals— To which no theories of the beneficent purposes of human pain can possibly apply, had never come home to him, since he can be satisfied with the explanation that good comes to the species though the individual creature perishes most miserably. Tennyson went much deeper when in his dream claimed justice for each individual sentient creature, however humble, that not a moth with vain desire shall perish in a fruitless fire or but subserve another's gain. It is on this side, and I think only on this side, that I have felt, Martineau, insufficient. But where are we to find the teacher who will lead us out of this wilderness? You cut the knot by abandoning the idea of a moral agent at the helm of the universe. And I can quite see how much is to be said for the view, which was poor Mivart's last expression of doubt or faith, that the great inscrutable energy behind nature is something very different from the God worshipped by Christians or theists. But to me, after beating my feeble wings against the bars for sixty years, I remain a believer in a father of spirits, who must be just. Elsewhere did we gain this supreme, sublime craving for justice, certainly not from any set of the brain acquired at any epoch by any generation of mankind from experience. But I did not mean to touch on the controversies which have occupied so much of both your life and mine only to express my feelings, respecting the points on which you criticize Martineau. I am very old and growing feebler, and losing my sight and activity, and, which is far more sad, I am alone, for my beloved Mary Lloyd died in my arms three years ago. I am living still, quite alone, in what was her house, which quite unlooked-for riches have enabled me to take on lease for my life— it is a beautiful old place, and I am lucky in possessing excellent and affectionate servants, and dear beasts in plenty, dogs and horses, cows and herds, a rookery and a heronry in the woods. But old age and solitude, facing for ever nearer and nearer the great dark door, is a solemn thing indeed. I rejoice heartily to hear that you have happy and affectionate children, and a little grandchild to cherish and keep your heart young— May you have yet many peaceful and happy years. End of chapter 51 Part 3